Blog Talk Radio. harmony. The earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity. Human beings, human love, on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African embrace Live beyond Love beyond Your skin To where you belong Original, 
uh, one of the things Kwame uh, Tui used to say, that, that the capitalists don't lie sometimes, they lie all the time. It's very, very true. And so when thinking about this whole question around deception, it got me to think in terms of, you know, some of the some of deception that manifests itself in society, and why people have to be uh, aware in terms of these kind of this, this kind of deception. But in even brother Africa, I wrote this. I uh, certainly hope it will provide some clarity in terms of the level of deception that permeates the society uh, as is guided by capitalism. Now, the contradictory nature of capitalism cannot be overstated. Imbued with self-evident inconsistencies, strategies of deception are employed to conceal the disingenuous nature of capitalism as a system of principle, while surreptitiously concealing its focus of empowering wealth at all costs. Often this hypocrisy is highlighted, and the ruling class response is to deny any fraction has occurred. In the case of the recent World Trade Organization ruling in which the U.S. was found guilty of anti-competitive behavior against China, <laughs> by imposing unwarranted tariffs on China's goods, U.S. was fined $645 million a year of which China can impose on U.S. goods. Needless to say, this kind of business practices, not to mention the systematic exploitation of impoverished countries, have contributed to the decline of the U.S. economy. Response from the ruling class is to tinker around the fringes and to avoid any real analysis acknowledging the decline of capitalism. Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell has intimated the possibility of seven interest rate increases. Now, the aforementioned has been scaled back to four interest rate increases for the year 2022. Now, such interest rate increases are problematic for two reasons. One, the U.S. national debt of $30 trillion, which is officially, unofficially, is much higher, coupled with interest payments, could never be repaid. The decline of stock write-up repayment or the share prices has fallen considerably. Now, because the returns expected by investors should be higher, given the U.S. economy's instability, i.e., unemployment, low wages, and inflation, thereby creating risk, the stocks very easily could become useless, according to investors. As a result, should be considerably higher returns. Secondly, the inflation rate of 7.9% is unprecedented over a 40-year period. Fear of inflation or pending hyperinflation is compounded by the fact the Federal Reserve plans to reduce its balance sheets by selling securities, securities in stocks or bonds, or by simply removing securities from sale, and in the process, not pay out for securities whose payments are due. Taking into consideration, the Federal Reserve balance sheet has grown from $7.2 trillion in 2020 to over $9 trillion currently. The wealthy who depend on free money now will be confronted with the paying taxes on assets like land, houses, stocks, energy, and food, etc., without access to free money any longer. Instead, money will be accessible, but provided at market rate for wealthy businesses and business owners. Much of the access to money will be from the selling of treasury and not be viewed favorably by the wealthy. Given this scenario, the only plausible resolution is, <coughs> is rampant inflation as the wealthy seeks to avoid the cost of borrowing by passing the cost onto others in the form of higher costs for food, energy, gas, and so forth. This peculiarity of capitalism is often expressed openly in International Monetary Fund's deliberations. The IMF concerns about the Federal Reserve's interest rate increases. Implications far exceed the borders of the U.S., but the world generally. According to the IMF, rate interest rate increases will contribute to financial volatility because of the interconnectivity of trade and investments. 
The Federal Reserve countered by saying, quote, interest rate hikes will only occur when the economy reaches full employment or about 4%, end quote. Officially, the unemployment rate is 3.9%, while numbers of unemployed people is 6.3 million, according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. This number does not take into consideration 3 million jobs lost since COVID-19 or people who have stopped looking for employment. In a nutshell, unemployment statistics are contrived with little of any relationship to reality. Federal Reserve representatives have also pointed out interest rate increases will commence when inflation drops to 2%. Reduction in U.S. inflation is important in establishing the attractiveness of securities, but but achieving 2% inflation rate belies an economy in deep distress, plagued by vast inequality, rendering 2% inflation rate impossible to achieve. Clearly, if the U.S. could reach 2% inflation rate, foreign investors would purchase more U.S. securities and less U.S. treasuries that imposes additional debt on the U.S. economy. Now, U.S. economic debt is imposed by purchasing U.S. treasuries because U.S. has to pay higher share prices. It's directly implicated in foreign economic decline when U.S. debt compels treasuries to be sold at lower price shares. Lower price shares presents two problems for developing economies. First, in returns of capital outflows as countries have to use foreign reserves or foreign money for trade and investments to pay for losses as a result of treasury yield declines. And secondly, currency depreciation or the decrease in value of the currency as stipulated by the World Bank, especially for developing economies who cannot trade in their own currencies. It should come as no surprise, poor economies abroad negatively impact the U.S. economy because trade cannot ensue without additional financing from both the IMF and the World Bank finances, which exacerbate poverty, undermining trade and showing less U.S. wealth. Finally, the sanctions against Russia may achieve, in some small measure, the objectives sought to undermine Russia's economy. However, fluctuations in the value of the ruble may be offset by price controls on certain commodities or Russia banks purchasing assets to control inflation. Russia may well use digital currency to conduct trade using Chinese yuan. Now, revenues lost from the oil or gas sales would not financially cripple Russia because liquidated natural gas is vital to technological innovation and the demand will not weaken anytime soon as other nations seek to buy Russian products. In addition, the quality of Russia's liquefied natural gas is very good. On the other hand, sanctions will harm the U.S. economy given the circulation of dollars throughout the world, which is key to U.S. hegemony. It's successful at blocking Russia from the SWIFT system. The $14.4 billion investment in Russia would aggravate the $30 trillion in U.S. national debt, which will foment more inflation in the U.S. and throughout the world. Replacing Russia's oil with U.S. oil will be a losing proposition in terms of quality because the cost of refining U.S. fractured oil requires additional refining once off the ships to produce liquefied natural gas. The cost will introduce more inflation to the European European Union and the United States and the world as well. It appears these things are more about public relations than getting Russia to leave Ukraine. Unless the U.S. is willing to abide by the Minsk Agreement, and, uh, and the honoring of the former Secretary of State James Baker declaration, quote, of, and he made this quote back in 2017, not one inch eastward with NATO expansion, end quote. Un- unless they honor this, these things by James Baker, this country will not know peace, and the U.S. provocations will continue, promoting war and the of the world. 
So it's clear that people understand the inherent um, deception that's so much part in terms of what we call capitalism. And until we fundamentally understand that, uh, we can never be in a position to really uh, critique the society and bring up the kind of needed change that we so desperately need in terms of bringing about some semblance of humanity you know, throughout the society and throughout the world. And I close with that, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Aki. We next would we next would transfer over to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Can you hear us, Sister uh, good Eleanor? Good evening, Brother Africa. Good evening, um, everyone. My name is Eleanor Johnson, and thank you so much for allowing me to participate this evening. The world is in a crisis, but we will address the issue and try to get perspective to the many wars the planet is facing. I'm a little under the weather also this evening. I I have to care, and I'm on my way to uh, urgent care appointment, so I may be off air. I'm listening, but uh, I'll be there with you. Thank you. I'll be on this evening. No problem. Yes. Thank you, Mr. Um, since Eleanor, we'll transfer over to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Moon. Brother Moses. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa. And, and um, well, which is Sister Eleanor. Um, my name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during a government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we, we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. Women hold up half the sky. That's why I'm for the Equal Rights Amendment, ERA, yes. And, you know, we continue to struggle to delineate and uh, have clear lines of demarcation in order that we may, in order that we may unite. And before we can unite, we must have clear lines of demarcation. The little shades of differences must be, must be uh, shown to be what they are. And we, and the principal contradictions that divide us must be exposed and, uh, um, um, delineated and uh, and decided whether they're antagonistic or not. You know, antagonistic contradictions are irreconcilable. One side has the win out over the other. Uh, they can't exist, coexist. And so, anyway, we this is abstract in what I'm saying right now. But but in the concrete struggle, we will make friends and and make enemies. Uh, as we struggle for peace and justice. And I, I want to thank you for allowing me to be on the show, Brother Africa. Thank you, Brother Moses. And to our listening audience, this is Brother Africa. And what we're going to do right now, since our theme today is part two, Bell Wall and Bell Media, we're going to talk a little bit about this whole question of Bell Media in relationships to the intelligence department. At this point in time, but before we do that, what we're going to do is go down with memory lane, and we're going to pay one of our past features as it relates to the CIA 
and fake news back in the 1980s. We're going to play this clip with you when we come back. We would like to have our panelists um, respond to this clipping, and we'll continue to move forward. So let's go to our clipping, the CIA and fake news, 1980. We all know that you can't believe everything you read, but at the same time, most journalists do try their level best to get the facts straight. It requires checking and, wherever possible, a first-hand account of what's happening. But an eyewitness account is not always possible, particularly in nasty wars on the other side of the world. And so reporters sometimes have to rely on other people's accounts. The story then becomes as good as its source, and sources sometimes lie. The U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, the CIA, deals in information and misinformation. Tonight we see how the CIA has been able to plant news reports that aren't just inaccurate, but totally fabricated. This is Angola, a former Portuguese colony in southwest Africa that's been at war since the mid-70s. Its left-wing government, supported by Cuban soldiers, fights a continual battle against guerrillas backed by South Africa. Ten years ago, the Soviets helped send guns and troops here, and the United States responded with support for the guerrillas. According to newspapers at the time, that's how the Angolan War started. But did it? John Stockwell, wearing the cross, worked for the CIA for 12 years. As a colonel, his last assignment was to run the U.S. campaign in Angola. The basic theme was to make it look like a, a Russian-Cuban aggression in Angola. And so any kind of story that you could write and get into the media anywhere that, that pushed that line, you did. Uh, one third of my staff in this task force was covert action, was propagandists, whose professional career jobs was making up stories and finding ways to get them into the press. In 1975, the resource-rich African country was being fought over by three factions. Agostino Neto led the left-wing MPLA, which eventually became the government. Jonas Savimbi, an anti-Marxist, led UNITA, which was openly supported by South Africa. And another anti-communist force was led by Holden Roberto, who had been paid by the CIA for 14 years and was now to receive major U.S. support. The CIA had just closed down three long-term paramilitary operations in Southeast Asia, the Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. They had over a thousand paramilitary case officers come flocking back to Washington. They didn't have desks for everybody, much less jobs, and morale was rock bottom low. They wanted a covert action. They wanted a paramilitary encounter. The rationale was that uh, uh, the Soviet Union was trying to take advantage of the United States' weakness right after the, the Vietnam War, that Angola was getting its independence, and they were trying to snap it up, and that Henry Kissinger decided that we could not be weak and we wouldn't let them do it. Our own files disproved that. We moved into Angola first, and the Russians were responding to us. But before the CIA could move, the U.S. National Security Council had to be sold and Stockwell helped with the briefing. The first briefings on Angola literally went, gentlemen, this is a map of Africa. Here is Angola. 
And then they went on with a chart to explain there are three liberation movements in Angola. One of them is headed by Holden Roberto. He's the good guy. We've worked with him for years, and they use literally good guy. Then the, the MPLA is headed by this drunken, psychotic Marxist poet, Augustino Neto. He's the bad guy. And they used exactly the good, so to make sure that people understood. <laughs> Once the National Security Council had given its blessing, Stockwell and the CIA cranked up their propaganda machine. And newspapers around the world became unwitting accomplices in the campaign. From the CIA's headquarters, Stockwell sent his propagandists to Britain, Portugal, Zambia, and Zaire. Far from the battlefield in Angola, they wrote news releases for the two Western-backed factions, and these were fed into the ticker tapes of the Western media. Stockwell's CIA men also wined and dined Western journalists and gave them personal briefings. His man in Zambia was particularly enthusiastic. He ran a story that the city of Malangi had been captured by the UNITA forces, and in doing so, it captured 20 Russian advisors. And uh, they thought this would show that Russians were running the thing in Angola. There weren't Russian advisors. It wasn't a factor, and we knew that. But the story did well. The Toronto Star, like many newspapers, picked it up from Reuters News Agency. It was also carried in the Montreal Gazette and in the Vancouver Sun. I, I remember reporting that very clearly. Fred Berglund was the Reuters reporter who filed the story from but, Zambia. Um, years later, I discovered that um, a little CIA um, misinformation expert had sat in the um, U.S. Embassy in Lusaka and had composed that communique, and it bore absolutely no relationship at all to truth. You've got to remember, at that stage, during a war, um, you're working under incredible pressure. I, I worked for four months without a day off for 16 hours a day. And all that was wanted was a flow of information. I mean, I, I'd done the same in the Middle East War. I, uh, I was based in Damascus. I mean, in the first week of the war in Damascus, I, I wiped out the Israeli Air Force three times over with official statements. Reuters, with its headquarters here on London's Fleet Street, is one of the world's largest news agencies. Its international bureaus provide many newspapers with their only source of news from far parts of the globe. Well, I mean, with hindsight, um, some of the official statements from the side I was reporting, and I stress from the side I was reporting, but also from the side that people in, um, in Luanda with the MPLA were reporting, clearly most of those, rep those statements were completely false. The CIA man in Zambia soon came up with an even better story. He had some Cuban soldiers uh, raping some young Angolan girls. Uh, then there was a battle, and he had uh, that Cuban unit cut off and captured. And then he had the Cuban women, the victims, identifying their rapists. And then there was a trial, and they were convicted. And then he had them executed by a firing squad of the women who had supposedly been violated with photographs of, of, of young African women with uh, weapons shooting down these Cubans. Uh, there had never been a rape. There had never been the military action. The Cubans had never been captured. Uh, it was all fiction. Fiction, maybe. But it showed up on the front page of papers like the Toronto Star. The Toronto Globe and Mail also ran the story, and its headline attributed it to Angolan guerrillas. 
Many other Canadian newspapers in cities like Winnipeg, Montreal, and Halifax picked up the story. Basically, and to put it very crudely, you can um, publish any old crap you like, and it will get um, get a um, newspaper room. But despite the best efforts of the CIA, the armies it supported didn't stand much of a chance once Cuban soldiers showed up. The force led by the man who'd been on the CIA payroll, Holden Roberto, was wiped out. And UNITA and the South Africans made a hasty retreat. Back in Washington, Congress didn't want another Vietnam and voted against spending any more money in Angola. More recently, the CIA has found work for its skilled writers in Central America, particularly in the campaign against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. First, the arms flow story. According to President Reagan, Nicaragua supplied guns to left-wing guerrillas in neighboring El Salvador. The Sandinista dictatorship of Nicaragua, with full Cuban-Soviet bloc support, not only persecutes its people, the church, and denies a free press, but arms and provides bases for communist terrorists attacking neighboring states. David McMichael was the CIA's senior analyst on Nicaragua. He was asked to write a report on the arms flow, but when he looked at the evidence, it didn't support Reagan's claims. The, the argument that we're dealing with here is, do these arms come through or from Nicaragua with the complicity of the Nicaraguan government, and the evidence does not sustain that. In 1981, the CIA asked McMichael for a report on the Nicaraguan press, opposition, and church. And my, my conclusion was that, uh, you know, there was a significant space for these, uh, for these groups to operate, uh, but that they were in no, in no danger of suppression or disappearance. Compared to any other Central American country, Nicaragua has by far the liveliest uh, opposition press and media. Over two-thirds, for example, of the 40-odd radio stations in the country are, are still privately owned and generally speak their mind. When McMichael spoke his mind, the CIA didn't like it. He was fired. But after four years of fighting, now the Nicaraguan government has suspended many freedoms. In the world's newsrooms, the CIA efforts at disinformation continued to turn up. In 1982, reporters were shown photographs of what the CIA said were Soviet bases in Nicaragua, identifiable by their Soviet-styled obstacle courses, training areas, and guns. I used to laugh and say, look at that Soviet-style baseball diamond over there, you know. Um, you know, this is, this is almost foolish, really, you know, to talk about this. First of all, they're not Soviet military bases. That's, that's the whole point. The second is that a barracks is a barracks, you know, an obstacle course is an obstacle course. The Soviet freighter Bakuriani pulled into the Nicaraguan port of Corinto today, carrying a mystery cargo which could lead to a showdown between the Sandinista Just over a year ago, on the day President Reagan was re-elected, his administration came up with another Nicaragua story. This one had to do with Soviet MiG fighters, which Washington said had been shipped to Nicaragua in some mysterious crates detected by satellite surveillance. The result was more headlines. But as the story developed, doubts began to emerge. Ronald Reagan had a warning today for Nicaragua and for the Soviet Union. Reagan said the U.S. still cannot confirm reports that Nicaragua has received a shipment of MiG-21 jets. But he said if the reports turn out to be true, 
the U.S. would take a very dim view. The Nicaraguan government has denied that crates taken off a Soviet freighter today contain any warplanes, and it's accused Reagan of trying to whip up an invasion fever. By week's end, U.S. officials were saying there weren't any MiGs after all. It's the usual thing. The charge makes the headlines. The retraction makes the inside pages. Eight or ten days later, it's revealed, well, MiGs weren't on the way, but that's no longer a headline. So what one is left with is the overall impression from the screaming headlines of the week earlier that Nicaragua continues to represent this enormous danger to the security of the United States. This nation of three million impoverished souls, half of whom are under the age of 15, you know. Well, I would, I, I would say people are very silly if they believe everything that newspapers tell them. And I think pro probably anybody bu who buys a newspaper needs a course on how to read newspapers. Oh, God, yo. 
to Africa on the moon, imperialism, capitalism, Stalinism, and all of these oppressive systems and philosophies and ideals, they may have set the world on fire. But trust me, we know Africa and African people are going to put this fire out. We welcome you back to Africa on the moon. Before we had took our break, we was going to ask our panelists to come back and speak to this issue of dealing with the media. Since today's thing is part two, they are war and their media. I thought that it would be a good idea that we remind our people, looking at what is being played out today, is that, as Brother Hackey alluded to earlier in his earlier dissertation, is they don't lie all the some of the time, they lie all the time. Man, we listened to a, a clipping from the 1980s on how the CIA played a major role of controlling the narratives of what the media will and will not produce. Now, what's going on today as we look at this so-called war between Russia and Ukraine, there seems to be a lot of uh, similarities that is going on now in between that particular war but the walls and uh, the wall going on in Saudi Arabia and Yama. You got walls that are going on all over the eastern part of East Africa. You got the walls that are taking place against Cuba, Zimbabwe. And, I mean, you look at all these variation, variations of walls and look at how they've been betrayed. It reminds me of something that Brother Malcolm X stated. And then I was actually a panelist to maybe weigh in on do they see any similarities on what was just recently shared in terms of the historical relationship between these intelligence agencies and the influence and behavior of media? You know, Brother Malcolm once stated that the media is the most powerful entity on earth. They had a power to make the innocent guilty and to make the guilty innocent power because they control the minds of the masses. The press is so powerful in its image-making role, it can make the criminal look like he's the victim and make the victim look like he's the criminal. If you aren't careful, the newspaper will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the oppression, the oppressing. That's a really interesting, powerful statement. We will bring our panelists back in just to have a little, little chat and discussion on uh, this whole question of um, how we see the replay of the historical past and how the media is uh, presenting a narrative. So narratives that I'm not based upon the truth. I'd like to have your your take, Brother Hackey, on the phenomena, your response. Yeah, well, you know, I think, Brother Africa, just let's let's put it in a, in a slightly different perspective so as to demystify what the struggle is all about because a lot of people are still uncertain in terms of, you know, why do uh, people like ourselves take upon ourselves to even discuss these kind of issues. Uh, when the minds of a lot of people, everything is fine. There's no issue. But in a much general sense, what people have to begin to understand in terms of what the struggle is all about, 
life is very, very simple. You got to decide either you want a a a, a angelic life, a holistic life, a life which a life of meaning, or you want a life that's about deception, dishonesty, and materialism. So you have to. So philosophically, you have to decide what kind. Of, what do you see as representative of life? There are those among us who take the position that all human beings are special. All human beings should have access to the rights uh, or the materials provided by the planet. That that is the human right. Uh, we see that as uh, we see that we, 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 without regard to class or or ethnicity or anything, that human beings across the board have the right to have access to those those things, those material things that they need in terms of longevity or living on or live, living on this planet. Other people take the position that no, you don't. That only that only individuals have a right in terms of having access to to to, to, to find the things in this in this world. That we talk about the resources of the planet, it it can be it, it belongs to individuals and not to groups. And so philosophically, so we have this kind of uh, the economy that exists throughout the world. Uh, most of the world tends to believe that human beings are special. That human beings should be uh, sh- human beings should be should be cared for. Human beings should live in harmony. Human beings should work together to create a greater good. Most of the world believes that. You have a very small minority who believes that individuals, in fact, should rule the world. And as such, honesty, deception, uh, to teach people to hate, to teach people to be disingenuous is a natural way of life. And in, in, in so doing that, they, the, 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 the fruits are that they, they, they create a world in which there's massive suffering, massive injustice, uh, massive, massive, um, uh, massive hatred, and so that's those two extremes in terms of what life is all about. So people have to fundamentally, un- people have to fundamentally come to some resolution in terms of where do they stand? Are you pro-humane or you're anti-humane? That's what it comes down to. And all the struggles about the pro-humane forces versus the anti-humane forces. The U.S. represents the anti-humane forces, and so inevitably, when people around the world stand up and try to feed their people. When they try to educate their people, when they try to keep their, teach their people to love one another, they become enemies of the United States. Keep in mind, these countries don't have to do anything to the United States. As a matter of fact, they have never done anything to the United States. It doesn't matter. It is the idea that threatens the United States authority. And this is why they attack places like Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, China, uh, even Russia. Because uh, those states tend to say, listen, there is a different paradigm. This is a reason way in which human beings can organize society, and but America see see that 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 idea as a threat because if in fact if you create a situation in which people have everything they need in terms of materially that people are properly educated that people are properly schooled all these things that human beings need if you create a kind of society it means there's no room for exploitation. The U.S. position is that there's always room for exploitation. And matter of fact, in order for us to prevail, in order for us to be number one in the world, we got to make sure. Uh, we have to make sure that we keep uh, pe- pe- people at each other's throats. And in the process, we maintain control, dominance, and power. And so, so, so their so focus is on the anti-humane uh, aspect of human existence. So this is the fundamental conflict that we're confronted when we, we have these discussions around what's really going on. Unfortunately, when you alluded to Malcolm, and you're absolutely correct, uh, Malcolm, when he talked about the power of the media, the media has very, 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 uh, a tremendous amount of power. Uh, there are people who talk about, um, you know, Russia's the bad guy because, you know, they, ingra- they invaded Yugoslav- I mean, uh, Ukraine. Well, when the U.S. invades country after country around the world, it's, it's always, they're always perceived as the good guys. 
And the question is, how could that be? Well, it comes down to media presentation, a narrative that's created uh, by the media uh, that germinate in the minds of people to give them some kind of credibility. So people start believing that that which they've been taught, and you tell it to them over and over and over again, they believe it to be true. And so the U.S. would, inter- so the inter- US would intervene in, let's say, uh, Afghanistan, uh, Somalia, Ethiopia, um, Yemen. Um, um, it, it tried to invade uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Venezuela. I mean, uh, uh, Venezuela. Uh, Cuba's under attack. Uh, so the thing is that you know we got to understand is that um, you know this this whole notion in terms of in terms of the U.S. drive for domination is part and parcel of the problems that we're confronted with in terms of this whole struggle in terms of humanity that, that should be uh, forthright or the right of human beings throughout the planet. So clearly, I, I certainly hope people begin to understand that is the, the 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 fundamental conflict is not that very complex at all. It's very very it's very, very simplistic. You have to decide: Are you pro-humane or you're anti-humane? It's very very simple. You, you either fall in one or two camps. There's no middle ground. Uh, so we so U.S. sanctions attack. So so when people talk about uh, Ukraine, talk about the, the Russians being being the adversaries. Uh, one of the things that's interesting, but when you go back and look at the history of, of, of Ukraine. And you look at some of the U.S. involvement in Ukraine for the last, for the, over the last nine, seventy years. Uh, clearly, the U.S. has always had in, in uh, had its eyes on Ukraine. But why? Well, the one reason why the U.S. has always had its eye on Ukraine was because um, Ukraine, but in, in proximity, so close to Russia, uh, the U.S. always viewed Russia as a threat because Russia is one of those countries that 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 pushed class struggles throughout the world, which talks about workers unite in terms of workers, you know, fighting. For their fair share when it comes to profits, and so Russia represents a quintessential threat to the U.S. way of life or other Western states' way of life. And so what they do is that they warn people that they can call upon to destabilize or attempt to destabilize Russia. In this in this regard, when we talk about Ukraine, they got a large Nazi a Nazi uh, uh, presence in Ukraine. Those people are perfect in terms of facilitating as much division as possible, which serves U.S. interests. Because you can get those people to 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 uh, uh, to to work actively against Russia, to infiltrate Russia, and to bring his ideas into Russia, and to legitimize those ideas in terms of Nazism, then it's better for the United States. Because if they can form that kind of division in Russia, it's very easy for the United States to control Russia's re- resources. And so, therefore, again, it's a question in terms of the anti-humane anti anti-humane sentiment that's so prevalent that in, in the United States in the Western world. And so clearly, Brother Africa, well, I shouldn't say the Western world, but in the sense that when we talk about actually carrying out these policies, there are other states around the world who are not necessarily in the Western, Western orbit who still uh, have these kind of ideas, but they're not in, a position, or not in a position in terms of power to be able to implement these ideas. They might, they might relate to the United States in terms of this anti-human dimension, but it's not in the power to actually reinforce an anti-humane agenda on the world. The U.S. can, along with other Western states, are in a position to actually do that. So I have to make that distinction and understand, you know, uh, clearly there is somewhat of a class element when we talk about in terms of this whole pro-humane versus the anti-humane sentiment that exists in the world. So, Brother Africa, I'm certainly hoping that people understand, you know, this is, this is what it's all about. So when we talk about this stuff, we're simply trying to provide clarity in terms of, in terms of, you know, what the struggle is all about and, and why we have to take take apart these struggles, not because anybody enjoys taking on these struggles, but it's a necessity, necessity because you have these competing forces in the world, and we have to pick, t- pick a side. 
either you're for people, you're for humanity, or you're against people and oppose humanity. But is that simple? You have to make a choice, and I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Moses, what is your take on this issue? Should we trust everything we're seeing now in the media? Understanding that the media has a close relationship to this intelligence department and is often influenced and controlled by the intelligence department. You will take Brother Moses. Right. Um, well, the media, you know, has been serving the ruling class, um, generally speaking. Um, the, generally speaking, the media perpetuates whatever ideas the ruling class um, uh, is interested in, in in uh in pushing forward in order to carry out its interests. And um uh, right now, you know, the Russia is the bad guy. Bad guy, um it's in the interest of the the drum beat and the war drum drummers who want go want to go to war, uh and basically, you know, want NATO to beef up and and uh the Europeans to to get ready and and all this hysteria. Uh, um, I don't know. I don't know what to say in terms of. Um, um, I think it's a civil war in Russia, and that basically, you know, they have to work that thing out. Uh, uh, but uh, I was surprised when that Putin made the decision to go in. I was. I, it took me by surprise. I, 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 but I, I know some of the ideas behind it, uh, uh, and uh, but you know, when you see, when you look at the, the television and you see these buildings being bombed, I mean, it looks like, it looks like D.C., New York, uh, L.A., whatever. Uh, um, um, but but they're bombing them, bombing them. I mean. I don't know. You weigh the cost when when um, when you when you're gonna when you have some kind of vision or some kind of uh, uh, objective, you have to weigh the cost. And uh, I don't know what what could be what could be so valuable uh, in this circumstance that uh, that uh, it was necessary to do it, to invade, uh, but. Uh, but uh, I understand he's he's a he's a nationalist and uh, and he's pro Russia and uh, all that. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, I don't know. We should see time time moves on. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, and we're gonna go to Brother Anthony. But in terms of to go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, we'd like for you to respond if you're talking about the media and his relationship to his intelligent institutions. Is Brother Malcolm on point of what's maybe going or what is going on today when he stated that the media, the most powerful entity on earth, they have the power to make the innocent guilty and make the guilty innocent. And that's power because they control the minds of the masses. The press is so powerful in its image-making role, it can make the criminal look like he's the victim and make the victim look like he's the criminal. If you're uncareful, 
the newspaper will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the oppressing. Your response, Brother Anthony? Yes. Um, the media uh, has the power to do that. And that's even in, uh, intensified to the present day with the advances in technology since uh, Malcolm made that observation several decades ago. And, uh, and uh, you know, and, and he's correct. Uh, the, the, the media is capable through its uh, mechanisms of having a person hating hating their friends and loving their enemies. And uh, that's a hell of a lot of power to have. comes about because the media and the educational system, I would add, is so pervasive in this society. And also, uh, they, uh, the media takes good advantage of uh, the lack of uh, understand, uh, uh, understanding of a lot of people's understanding of world history. That's also taken advantage of. And uh, right now, in terms of understanding, uh, the problem is complex because there is an intense class struggle going on in Russia and the Ukraine. In other words, it's a struggle. It comes down to a struggle between the haves and have-nots. And if you don't know how the forces are aligned, it can get very confusing at times in terms of figuring out who's who. And, uh, you know, and the thing about it, though, uh, we're definitely not, uh, we're definitely against the expansion of Nazism or, or any other form of fascism and any form of oppression. That's why uh, we in the, uh, in the AAPRP take the position that we're for the masses of suffering people in both Russia and Ukraine. Uh, we're not for, uh, we're against uh, uh, the ruling uh, bourgeoisies in both countries, which are the enemy of the masses of humanity, just as in the other bourgeoisie throughout the world is. Thank you, Brother Anthony. We know that Sister Eleanor is under the weather a little bit. We can come back to her briefly, see if she would like to add something to this discussion before we take our culture break. And when we come back, we're going to ask our political panelists and analysts to discuss what's going on now we're in the community. But let's see if, if Sister Eleanor is up to the task. Sister Eleanor, is there anything you'd like to say to add to the discussion? This is Eleanor, are you there? Okay. What we're going to do right now, this is Africa on the Move. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to discuss what's going on in your world and the community. And you can join us by calling in 323-679-0841. Hit 1, and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. 
We'll be right back. Chains living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must to last through my journey, yeah, last through my journey, yeah. Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care for soon there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey. Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries and see the blood in the red clay, the clay that holds stones together is African, and each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out from the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights, pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun, pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind. 
blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. Know the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pelorinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. Know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer. To give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race, and creed. We need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, 
Palestine needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine. needs our love. Going back to Africa on the move. Day the 13th day of March, and just talking about being the 13th of March, again, you little tip it on one of historical notes that it was on this day where the People's Revolutionary Government of Grenada was established in 1979. Our people are a nation building people. So let's continue to move forward and we begin to talk about, and we encourage you to call in. And to share with our listening audience and the rest of the world, what's going on in your world and community? We're going to bring in Brother Haki. And at this point in time, Brother Haki, we're going to ask the question, what's going on in your world and the community? Brother Haki. Well, Brother Africa, when you, you talk about uh, uh, deception and dishonesty as related to the media, uh, the kind of deception that's employed, you know, day to day in a society. It's extraordinary. And one of the reasons why I so in terms of reading is because the lies are so varied. Uh, you know, to the extent that, you know, one reads or uh, one is capable of dissecting or seeing through the BS. Uh, so it's incumbent upon people definitely to read as much as possible. But in terms of one of the deceptions that I find very interesting was that recently I read an article on a problem with the, uh, with the, with the census, the census. And I think it was very, very interesting. I think it's one of the things that when we talk about uh, the devious nature of, of things in the society, and we have to be understand that uh, this, the devious nature of things play them benefits themselves all the time in society. Often we don't understand that because we're, we're conditioned by, by virtue of the media not to think about things. But in any event, Brother Africa, I want you to, to check this out. It's real brief. But now every 10 years, the census is used to assess the size of the U.S. population for two reasons. One, determine the number of representatives to Congress and for the purpose of drawing up political districts. And two, serve as guidelines for federal government to allocate funds to states in the form of block grants. Now, it should be pointed out historically, state funding was provided by revenue sharing in which funds provided by federal government were left to states to determine how the funds were spent. In 1987, Ronald Reagan ended all revenue sharing with the states and implemented block grants to the states. Block grants were implemented for two reasons. One, to to, to eliminate, according to those ambitions of power, Wasteful social spending and educational expenditures by the states of the federal government disapproved of, and two, to create mechanism by the federal government to determine how, how money will be spent by state governments. By imposing these conditions on states, the federal government could reduce its budgetary deficit by imposing austerity on states. Crippling the states' economies did not end with the block grants. Two additional criteria will be used to transfer wealth from the states to the federal government. This was achieved in two different ways. One, higher taxes will be implemented, which would which would just would, <coughs> would be higher taxes will be extracted from state by by tax reform. And secondly, a specific block grant referred to as categorical formula will provide funds to states not only dictating how the state will spend the funds, but states must use its own resources by providing half the cost of the grant from the U.S. government. Needless to say, the use of categorical formula since 2018 have been the preferred method of funding states. Out of the 1,274 block grants provided by the federal government, 
1,253 block variants have been the categorical uh, formula variety. So what does this have to do with do with the, with the census? Well, the level of inflation in the U.S. currently is 7.9% <coughs> that impacts the federal government's ability to pay the cost affiliated with conducting the census. In 2020, the cost was $14.2 billion, up from $13 billion in 2010. The increasing cost of conducting the census must be curtailed, but the more germane reason for the census, not to get it right, presides for politics. With an ever-increasing misery index, the level of poverty grows exponentially. The census mandate is, is, is to highlight the needs of the citizenry, provide necessary funding to states to address existing needs. With an economy $30 trillion in debt, the bottom line is addressing such needs is impossible without, without a restructuring of the U.S. economy. That simply would not happen. Instead, government officials in the Commerce Department resort to deception in an attempt to justify the exclusion of people of color while elevating the number of, 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 white, of white people <coughs> while underestimating poverty uses statistical manipulation. Now, this strategy is effective at boosting the Republican electorate but it obscures the creeping desolation that undermines the quality of life for all. Whether we are talking about Trump's cabinet members inquiring about the citizen status on census forms to instill fear, or the refusal of Republicans to support bills to purchase technology to more adequately assess the census numbers, concealing the economic disparity used by posting faulty population numbers may provide a temporary reprieve that will not do nothing to hide the economic decline and devastation that comes with declining uh, empire. That decline is quite evident in eliminating over 200,000 census workers in 2020 and, de and declining congressional representation of, of some of the biggest states in the U.S. with large indigenous, Asian, Latin, and African populations. It is safe to say legitimate census count, like democracy, are non-existent. I think it's important that people understand that reality in terms of when we talk about why the numbers are manipulated, there's always there's always a science behind it. And we don't often understand that science, but clearly we have to understand that given the the, the economic uh, uh, dis, uh, dislocation of the economy, uh, one of the things is that uh, as opposed to being honest with people and telling people that given, a, given how the system is structured, uh, this, this, this decline is inevitable, people in positions of power are not going to do that. But the system playing this game, that everything is, is, is okay, everything's gonna be all right. And the way in which they, uh, one of the ways in which they uh, perpetuate that game is through the census count. So people gotta understand that when they when they say that they can't get the census right, understand the reason they can't get the census right is because it serves the interests of those in positions of of of, of power. And I close to that, brother Africa. So as old go as old saying goes, figures don't lie, but lies do figure. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we're bringing Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world, in the community? Brother Anthony. <coughs> okay. uh, the struggle between the haves and have-nots is intensifying in Africa, quiet as it's kept, because it's being overshadowed in the U.S. by the Russia-Ukraine conflict. But there are other uh, wars going on in the world aside from that one. And uh, uh, let's see, and it's because of chauvinism and racism 
that these other conflicts do not get the attention of the uh, of the media, which leads to confusion. Also, uh, 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 more peculiar to the U.S. Uh, let's see, uh, the masses of taxpayers are paying for uh, 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 police misconduct. According to a study done by the New York Times, uh, let's see, uh, let's see, uh, the cost of covering uh, police misconduct Conduct is in the billions of dollars nationwide, and uh, repeat offenders can uh, uh, make up the bulk of the spending. Uh, and uh, a lot of a lot of uh, disputes, uh, unlike uh, the George Floyd and Breonna Taylor Taylor cases do not go to court trial. They're settled by by plea bargaining deals. And uh, most of the the funds for that comes from the taxpaying public. In other words, the masses of working people. And uh, this is uh, and the thing and the thing is though a lot of people aren't aware of this. So actually, uh, police corruption contributes uh, to human misery in this society in several different ways. One uh, one way is the uh, suffering uh, from police misconduct directly, the victims and their families, and another way, the bill is being uh, is being footed by the uh, by the taxpaying public. Thank you, Brother Anthony. From Brother Anthony to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Brother Moses. Well, I was just thinking about um, what's this Jeffrey Smollett, or is, is that the right name? That's the right name, and that this um, Black Panther. Um, that I'm no, I'm getting my. I got two different stories that I'm and I'm mixing them up. Um, this the the brother that's that's in. Um, a Chicago area that was accused of of um, hiring hiring people to beat them up or something and uh, to get to get more publicity or something was found guilty and uh, the they sentenced him to five months in jail and a lot of people felt like that's that was an unjust punishment or something. Uh, uh, I don't know. Uh, I think you know if. The question is, was it true or not? And uh, he, I guess he maintained he's innocent, but uh, the guilt, the jury found him guilty. And uh, once you find him guilty, I guess if you adhere to the law, then you have to judge, make judgment accordingly. And I don't know if, it's a, if a crime like that, I mean, where I mean, to go to that extent, uh, 
I think you know I, I don't see why why uh, five months is not reasonable. Uh, uh, but that's just me. Uh, and then the other thing was um, this the Black Panther. Uh, this brother from from he's I guess he's a producer or some kind of director or something. Uh, he was uh, arrested in in Bank of America uh, for trying to uh, withdraw ten thousand I think it's ten thousand dollars or twelve thousand dollars or something. He had he had he handed the teller a note, you know, trying to tell her to be discreet or something, and uh, and he handed her his card, his card and. Uh, driver's license I guess and uh but anyway she panicked, thought he was she was trying to rob her rob the place or something and next thing you know the police is the police is there and and he's off to to uh well he, I don't know if he got to jail but but anyway it's a big incident and Bank of America ends up apologizing for it and et cetera. But uh, then there's another brother who claims he has a similar case but he left before the police got there. And uh, the accused Bank of America being racist from the top down. Um, some uh, some of the employees city, the the people of color, the the big financial financial people who come in to invest, they steer them to the to uh, away from the people of color, and uh, and they they don't get to handle them. And they say it's a culture of racism in, in Bank of America. Anyway, there's a there's a few things going on. Uh, I I I need to get more attuned to what's happening. Uh, uh, thank you. No, no problem, brother Moses. I think was the, the first example, Jesse Mollett, I believe, who was an actor on um, what's the what's the story they used to be on. Um, with the drama that used to come on. Can't think of the name of the drama right now, but I know he was, I haven't been following the case, but I think it's a case where he, they say he set up the whole scenario to organize a false attack and um, by staging it, you know, you know, they gave him so many months in jail. But anyway, and the last one is, you know, dealing with the brother who was one of the producers of the Black Panther movie. You often would wonder if if that was a European who would have acted the same way, maybe would have to tell responding differently. What y'all think, uh, panelists? Brother Anthony, let's just start out. What, what would you think? You think there would be a different response? Was it just too much money for so. an individual African male to draw out? Well, go ahead, Brother I Anthony. Think, I think so. And the thing about it, though, keep in mind that that all the major banks have a history of racism. As my, these keep in mind that these were the institutions that financed uh, chattel slavery in the U.S. Uh, uh, primarily during the 18th and 19th centuries, and uh, Bank of America got its start. Uh, from mergers with various banks, did uh, other banks like Wells Fargo, uh, Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase, you know, uh, 
these major banks finance chattel slavery. So it's not surprising that uh that uh, that, that 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 racism runs rampant in these sorts of institutions. What do you think, Brother Haki? You think it was someone of European descent and he dealt the same way in terms of being trying to be secret, giving the teller ID and a note that they would like to draw a big amount of deposit? You think it was responding the same way? <laughs> You know, you know, if um, I'm a, you know, uh, one of the things is that uh, the tellers are separated by glass, and uh, <laughs> so, so when he introduced the, the note and the ID stating, "Listen, I want you to be discreet, give me the twelve twelve thousand dollars," I think in a very bizarre kind of way, you maybe you could extrapolate. Well, you know, uh, this is potential threat, you know, because you're telling me to be discreet. So I think in that context, I think race played a big part in terms of you know, her understanding of that term discreet. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I think when he was a white guy, I think uh, when he was able to discreet, it would have simply interpreted as simply being discreet. <laughs> you know, not to be obvious about, you know, giving the money, you know, counting the money out. So I think in the context of African person, I think it was it was took it in, in a different context. I think discreet meant, you know, oh. What you're saying is you're going to rob me. You know, you, you you know you want me to be quiet while you rob me. So I think she, they tell it interpreted that way. But I think it's part and parcel in terms of the, the mindset exists in society. And one of the things you understand is that no one is immune from racism in American society. So often we talk about you know giant corporation institutions in terms of the systematic biases that they employ. But we got to be very honest to understand that there are people in society who also inter- internalize. The racism, and so therefore we shouldn't be surprised when these situations pop up time and time again. In the case of Justice Smollett, I think one of the things that's interesting when you think back to those women who got their children into to a very good universities by paying our bribes. From a from society's point of view, uh, bribing the institutions uh, to put your children in front of others who are more well deserving, uh, just from a societal point of view, is much more damaging than someone alleging. Uh, they were uh, victimized by someone who happened to be a racist. So uh, clearly five months, in my mind, I cannot justify nor can I understand it. But I think the message is that, again, when it comes to African people in terms of the the legitimacy of their lives, I, I think that there's this, 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 inclina- this inclination or this, this understanding or this belief that uh, the lives of African people is not important. So what you, So what you do to them becomes unimportant. So I think that we can't dismiss race. Unfortunately, you know, as much as I like to believe, you know, that we're evolving as a society, but the more I look around, the more I read, the more I talk to people, the more I realize that a lot of the antiquated ideas around race uh, still has legitimacy today. So clearly, Brother Africa, I think that this incident had a lot to do in terms of race or this, this, this person's perception of this African man asking for $12,000 perhaps in her mind was a, a, a bit too extravagant you know, for an African person, uh, you know, to take out. So it could only mean that that kind of money meant that you're trying to rob me. And so clearly, Brother Africa, I think race played a part in terms of that whole dilemma. Thank you, Brother Haki. To our listening audience, this is Africa on the Moon. I'm Brother Africa. I'm Brother Africa. We're in the seat. We're going to take the heat. <laughs> As we define it, we're going to stand behind it. We're going to transition to today's theme, which is part two. 
their world and their media. We have selected some articles that will reflect some aspects of what's happening today as it relates to this theme. And when we come back, we're going to ask our panelists and analysts to discuss and give their take on a recent article that was published by the, by the source Nations of Change on August 15, 2018, uh, by Chris Kennett. The title of the article is U.S. Stage at Coup in U.K. Here's why and how. That's right. We said U.S. Stage at Coup in Ukraine. Here's why and how. So the topic is the truth about the coup in Ukraine is that it hasn't benefited anyone other than the war mongers. We're going to talk about that in the context of what's going on right now between this confrontation between Russia and Ukraine. So we'll be back. We'll be right back. Don't you go nowhere. We encourage you to participate by calling in 323-679-0841. This is Africa on the moon.
are the Fruit of Labor Singing Ensemble from North Carolina. We are the cultural arm of worker and civil rights organization Black Workers for Justice. Um, we came in from Raleigh, North Carolina, from Jacksonville, North Carolina, from Durham. Um, and we're here because we support and we are part of the labor movement, but also part of the environmental justice movement, too. We are with UE150, the North Carolina Public Service Workers Union, local of the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers of America. In our communities, we fight on the job, but we also see the need to fight in our communities. There is no distance between the two. If we want justice on our jobs, we have to fight for justice in our communities. A lot of our communities face um, environmental hazards. Uh, some of us come from communities that have super fun sites in the middle of them. Some of us are part of organizations, environmental organizations that fight against coal ash ponds, that fight, that are currently fighting against the um, Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which will come through predominantly of colors, communities of color, black and Native American communities. Um, so we're fighting against that. We're fighting against hog farms, uh, proliferation in North Carolina, and the dumping in our streams from being contaminated from hog farms. So we see the intersections between workers being poisoned on the job and workers being poisoned in our communities. We want to close with a song. So we wrote a song, Fruit of Labor wrote a song uh, about water contamination based upon struggles that were going on in North Carolina. So we're going to do a little bit of it right now. Okay. It's called Justice Flowing Down Like Water. Family drank from a deep clear well to the hearts and moved underground. Now the only story left to tell is innocence lost in community action. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Little girl, don't read so well. There's a lot that she'll never see. Some say it's the mercury in the fish of mama heat. Power plants causing you and me. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Clean water, clean water safe for all. That's it. <laughs> That's right. Everybody talking about crime. Everybody's talking about criminals. But who are the real criminals? We need justice. Justice for the oppressed. And to talk about at this point in time, we're going to make a transition to our today's theme. Part two, their wall and their media. And that was an interest article written back in 2018. And what we're trying to highlight is the importance of history. As Brother Lacker once stated, history is best to reward those who research. Now, this article that was written from the source of Nation of Change, titled U.S. Stage a Coup in Ukraine, Here's Why and How. To raise a real fundamental issue 
the custom, what's happening today between the two countries. But we'd like to have a little bit of discussion on that as it relates to this phenomenon. So, Brother Anthony, when we when we look at this article, it seems like those things that are taking place today was or set in motion many, 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 many years ago. Talk about what you took from this article and why it's important to understand uh, what we see today isn't just an outright uh, violation of someone interfering in someone else in terms of fail. Brother Anthony. There is a long history of that, unfortunately. Um, Ukraine was a part of the Soviet Union. Uh, For those people that don't recall, uh, you know, that history, the Soviet Union consisted of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, which were the remnants of the Russian Empire, of which Ukraine was a part, and uh, was a part of it up until 1991 or 92, when uh, when the the Soviet Union broke into various uh, federations and uh, other states, such as the Russian Federation, uh, Georgia, uh, Estonia, Latvia, uh, Ukraine, and uh, various other uh, states. They were fragmented. And uh, one of those states was uh, Ukraine. And uh, pri- uh, let's see, back in 2010-2014, they elected a president that was friendly to Russian interests, which pissed off the U.S. Uh, bourgeoisie. And uh, so they uh, so they meddled and staged. Uh, an election in 2014 uh, to uh, to get someone that was friendly to U.S. interests, which they succeeded. That's how uh, the current president of uh, Ukraine got into office, because he was friendly to U.S. and uh, NATO nations. And also, uh, let's see, there were several U.S. political figures that intervened in Ukraine uh, to set everything up, uh, one of which was uh, a couple which were John McCain and Victoria Newland. And um, uh Newland admitted during a speech in 2014 that the U.S. has spent $5 billion since the 1990s to spread democracy in Ukraine. And also involved were, uh, were, were, uh, were Ned George Soros and, um, uh, let's see, uh, uh, let's see, a guy by the name of uh, Mc, 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 Michael McFall. Uh, 
U.S. ambassador to Russia. And um, they want control of Ukraine uh, because ultimately they want control of Russia's resources. And it's all about imperialist expansion in addition to NATO uh, expansion. And NATO is, uh, is basically the military wing of imperialism. And so that is what uh, uh, fueled the crisis. And um, uh, Putin was uh, uh, opposed to, is opposed to Ukraine becoming a part of NATO for security reasons. And, uh, and so that is the uh, back, some of the background behind the conflict. It actually has a very deep history, and uh, which a lot of people have forgotten, which is why the media has been able to get away with, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, pushing for, uh, uh, you know, the the Ukraine government to defeat uh, Russia. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's a case of uh, the implication, the result of meddling in the internal affairs of another country, which the U.S. has done repeatedly throughout its history. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Brother Haki, clearly we can see that the forces in power today was organized and came through the support of the, of the U.S. and their institutions. For example, I often wonder how one individual uh, has the means to give a country $5 billion. It seems like he outright buying the country. But uh, what is your take on this article, Brother Hackey, in terms of putting in this proper context of what's going on today? Well, you know, with respect to the $5 billion um, that the Brother Anthony talked about, uh, and he talked about no, no, um, uh, former Undersecretary uh, Victoria Newland. When she talked about that $5 billion that's been allocated um, um, to Ukraine, I mean, to Ukraine since the 1994, people don't understand that of that $5 billion, $3 billion went to Poroshenko, uh, the former president of the Ukraine. Now, Poroshenko, remember the so-called Madan Revolution, that was when uh, they actually had uh, um, snipers from the state of Georgia who actually came into the Ukraine for the sole purpose of stirring things up. So that, along with the systems of the National uh, Endowment of Democracy, NED, and George Soros' group, the National International Renaissance Foundation, the CIA, and the State Department, they collectively created the Orange Revolution and made it possible in terms of forcing the, the, the winner uh, of the election, uh, uh, you, uh, you, Yanukovych, uh, who won the election in 2010, they thought they compelled him to flee uh, the state, the Ukraine state. Uh, so clearly, uh, their ability in terms of organizing, their ability in terms of using money and to bribe people to get their way, is something that's, uh, that's, been, that's been on display for a long, long time with respect to American foreign policy. So one of the things when we talk about in terms of their their um, success at bribing state state you know uh, state officials. One thing is you got to understand that when you talk about Ukraine, talking about the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, much of that has to do 
with with the fact a couple of things. Number one, there was an agreement they made with the, the men's conference number men's number one, and they had a subsequent conference, men's number two. But essentially, what it said was that um, the regions of Ukraine, like um, um, Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, had the right um, to enjoy their relationship with, with Russia because most of the people are Russian speaking, their culture was Russian, and they identify with the Russian state. And so, under this immense agreement, the whole idea was that it would, it would be in part of Ukraine, but they would be free to practice their culture and their language uh, based upon the relationship with Russia. And Ukraine had agreed with that. Uh, the second thing, the U.S., you know, under Secretary of State, former Secretary of State James Baker, had agreed uh, that uh, NATO would not expand eastward toward Russian borders. And of course, and we, we understand in hindsight that all this, all this talk about in terms of, you know, honor was just a, was just a, uh, was just a uh, for facade. Uh, the U.S. never had any attention in terms of honor agreement in terms of, you know, uh, stopping NATO's uh, uh, <clears throat> um, um, expansion. You know, on Russian borders, uh, they saw an opportunity to do so, and that's what they did. And they they, they elected this guy Zelensky, who is by trade a comedian, and so he's the perfect guy for in terms of for manipulation because he doesn't he doesn't have the sophistication in terms of understanding international politics, and so therefore he's much more gullible to Western uh, Western influences. And so as a consequence, they've been able to manipulate him, you know, to play up, you know, this desire in terms of being part of NATO. Now, of course, once Ukraine becomes, it becomes an obvious threat for Russia. And in addition to the obvious threat to Russia, when you start talking about the Western states, and particularly the United States, providing weaponry, you know, both offensive and defensive weaponry to the Ukraine, many of which is nuclear-based, then it's going, to scare, it's going to scare people. And Russia's position is that, no, 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 based upon these previous agreements, you have, you have no right in terms of, you know, you know in terms of, you know, uh, 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 um, threatening Russia in the first place. And so, therefore, Russia did what any, any state would do. It, it defended its borders. And not that I'm thinking that Putin is, um, you know, some type of um, uh, imperialist on a grand scale. He may be imperialist in terms of, you know, uh, his nationalism, in terms of, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, protecting Russian interests. But when it comes to just in terms of global imperialism, I don't think Putin is particularly interested in that because it strikes me as much more, much more logical in terms of his thinking. He seems to be much more... Um, Pragmatic in terms of the way he thinks, but I say, but, but the inherent threat posed by the Ukraine meant that he had no other recourse but the response. But one of the last thing, brother Alka, I think this is important we, that we, we, we we talk about. One of the things, and we talk about NATO expansion, we talk about the U.S. relationship with some of the most seedy individuals on 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 the planet. Uh, Russia, uh, Ukraine has a long history in terms of you know um, right wing you know ideology or or, or right wing uh, individuals in particular. Not the individuals, and it's very ironic that you know, uh, you know, back in the 1945, uh, the U.S. brought a lot of Nazis, you know, from Germany to the United States for for for, for rocket uh, innovation and, and computer innovation and those kinds of things. And it's very interesting. And a similar kind of uh, similar kind of um, operation was enacted back in 1950s to the 1960s, Operation or Project Aerodynamic, in which they did the same thing in terms of recruiting Nazis. From the Ukraine for the sole purpose, Nazis, not just for the Ukraine, Nazis from Poland, Nazis from, from the Jewish community. Uh, not Nazis, they weren't Nazis, but they were right-wing uh, Jewish, Jewish individuals. Recruiting such individuals for the sole purpose in terms of undermining Russia. So this kind of antagonism, this political, um, uh, this geopolitical uh, 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 opposition to Russia's existence has been ongoing. 
And for us to think that Russia doesn't have an inherent right in terms of defending itself, I think is naive on our part. I think given this reality, Russia had no other recourse but to do so. Now, I would imagine if you would have uh, bring, say, Russian troops or Chinese troops and bring them to set them up in Mexico or Canada and set up shop there, would the U.S. say no problem or would the U.S. Or would the US mil- intervene militarily? Well, probably, probably intervene militarily. Uh, so clearly, you know, Russia has its interest, and the United States wants you to think that somehow Russia is the bad guy, when in fact what it is is Russia is responding to U.S. geopolitical stratagems. Uh, well, the, sole per- the sole focus is, of course, is to undermine the Russian, the Russian state, ultimately, as Brother Africa alluded to, to take over their resources. So clearly, Brother Africa, people can understand that there's always more than one, more than there's always two sides to every story. And what the media is telling you in terms of what's going on in terms of Ukraine and what's really going on historically are two different things. But it's important we understand historically what is going on and the role the U.S. plays in terms of propagating, you know, these kind of events. And it's not just it's not just in Ukraine. It's done all over the world. They're currently doing it in Ethiopia. They're doing it in Somalia. They're doing it all over the place. They're doing they did it in uh, Iraq. Or they're doing it in Syria. They do it all over the place. And so clearly. When we talk about aggressors, we clearly have to understand who the real aggressors are. Uh, and in this particular in this particular instance, the real aggressor is really the United States, who's really behind all of this. And to our brother Moses, are there any things you would like to add to the discussion, brother Moses? Well, not at this time. Not at this time. Okay, let's let's continue to move forward. Okay, so Hill received as a president of the U.S. for years prior to tried to take control of Ukraine solely for the purpose uh, to undermine the so uh, Russia integrity. Now, when we think about what's going on, that we are interested. That was this issue of when the African community is that. Many people argue, what does this war has to do with African people? Here you got two white nations fighting each other, and we should have nothing to do with it. It doesn't impact us. Well, you know, objectively, everything that takes place in this world has a direct relation impact on us one way or another, whether if we are conscious of it or not. And I say that because I think this question of um, this article titles, you look to Africa to fill natural resources, to fill natural gas gap, is a good phenomenon in terms of one aspect of how it may impact Africa and African people. So, Brother Haki, we'll start with you. When you look at this question of this wall, and now they look at Africa like usual, Whatever they get in the hole, for some reason or another, Africa become the material base to maintain and support their well-being interests. Talk to this issue of why will you have looked to Africa for their natural gas gap? And how does it impact this whole general issue of Africa and African people? That's a real paradox at play because the whole idea in terms of, in terms of um, imperialism is to prevent, prevent Africa from, you know, developing its infrastructure, and that includes oil and energy. Uh, it's very interesting now that uh, they're trying to uh, block Russia from selling its, its oil 
and natural gas products around the world. They're looking for Africa as, as, as a potential cure. But the problem is that, again, when we talk about imperialism, because Africa uh, capacity has been blocked, Africa doesn't have the capacity in terms of providing kinds of uh, uh, cuba meter, uh, 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 the kinds of uh, kinds of uh, the 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 the, the, um, the amounts of uh, natural gas and uh, natural gas that the, that the that the Europe and the U.S. would need, and so clearly that's a problem. Uh, so they're talking about in terms of enhancing this you know capacity. They're talking about it's going to take years in terms of you know building that infrastructure to enhance that capacity. So even though you got countries like Algeria and Nigeria, you know, who got lots of natural gas, the problem is that it's, it's problem in terms of delivering it because imperialism made it impossible for them to deliver uh, uh, so much so much uh, natural gas. And so therefore now the, 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 it seems to me that what, you, what the U.S. and the West propose as a solution to their oil problem or their gas problems is no solution at all because Russia, because Africa simply doesn't have the capacity in terms of delivering the, the quantities of natural gas that the, the West, the United States in particular, need in terms of being a viable economy. So it seems to me, Brother Africa, my position is that, uh, you know, eventually, you know, all this talk about, you know, how they're going to block Russia with natural gas, the bottom line, given the cost involved in terms of the quality of the natural gas that Russia provides, the, the West and the United States has no other recourse but to this particular play ball. So I think now, I think this discussion about Blocking Russia from selling its natural gas abroad is all part of a, part of a grand political strategy, a public relations strategy. But I think the bottom line is that you know they they got no other place to go but Russia in terms of because it's the, it's the biggest oil gas producer in the world and they have no other recourse. Now I don't think seriously they're talking about spending billions and billions of dollars in terms of improving Africa's capacity to produce natural produce and ship natural gas. I don't see them doing that. Maybe I'm maybe I'm a bit jaded, you know, in terms of my understanding of the history of imperialism, but I simply don't see them investing that kind of money, uh, potentially, you know, uh, making the uh, African economy is viable. So I simply don't see that. So I, I do see them wanting to Africa, maintain dominance over Africa, and one of the ways they do that is to make sure Africa doesn't get the necessary kind of farm reserves or the kind of investment it needs in terms of being legitimately, you know, independent and free. So I don't think that this is a this is a solution for the West, but unless that's what they're telling, they're telling people that they're going to go to Russia in terms of solving their natural gas problems. But I don't see it as a, as a I don't see it as a, as a, as, a, as a solution. You know, Brother Anthony, in World War One, Africa played a major part in terms of Europe's survival. World War Two, Africa played another um, major part of European survival. Now I'll be repeating the same story again. Why are you looking to Africa for its survival? And how shall we respond? What's your take from this article, Brother Anthony? Hey, um, I, I will uh, give my take on this article in a moment, but I want to talk about a more direct impact on African people that this war mm-hmm. has. Uh, if you don't mind, give me a couple of minutes. Uh, Take your there time, are, brother. Yeah, there are a, there are some uh, some students that are studying in Ukraine, just as they study in various parts of uh, Europe 
and the Western Hemisphere. And uh, because of uh, uh, of the racism in Ukraine, and also because, um, uh, let's see, uh, uh, inadequate preparation, those students are trapped in Ukraine. So the students and their families back at home in Africa are are feeling the effects of this conflict. Also, there are a number of workers, primarily athletes and entertainers, that work in Ukraine for various sets of reasons. You know, uh, it's relatively financially lucrative for one thing. But they're they're also trapped uh, because of this conflict. Uh, they uh, they having a hard time getting to the Ukrainian border in order to get out of the country, and because of the bombing raids, airports in Ukraine aren't functional. So uh, so that's another way in which Africans in the diaspora and at home are being impacted by this conflict. And uh, that shows that war has, uh, no matter how localized, can have international uh, ramifications. And this does. And uh, this is a more immediate concern than the... uh, than extracting natural gas out of Africa, which is which doesn't address Europe's immediate problems, but they may want to do that eventually. But that is not uh, that is not the most impressing impact that this conflict has on Africans at home right now. The fact that their students and workers. Uh, in Ukraine is a more immediate impact. And also, uh, let's see, to go back to the points you made earlier about World War One and World War Two. Uh, let's see, uh, those wars are basically about who would control the resources of Africa. And uh, that was not... Uh, that was supposedly settled at the Berlin Conference, but not all the parties there were satisfied with that arrangement. That is a factor that led to the imperialist wars one and two. And uh, and uh, actually, uh, a, 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 a local politician during World War One recruited Africans out of Senegal to fight on behalf of France in World War One. And uh, after that conflict was over, the Senegalese soldiers did not go back to Senegal or any other part of Africa. They settled in Germany. And, uh, and uh, people forget that one of the first victims of Nazism 
were those Africans that immigrated to Germany and the offspring they had by European women. But, um, you know, that's an important aspect of history that is often overlooked. And a lot of Africans have forgotten about that. And uh, that's because it's not, uh, it's a perspective that's not taught in the educational system that most Africans are subject to. But again, uh, let's see, uh, at the end of the day, uh, Europe and all the other imperialist countries of the world are looking to maintain their dominance over Africa uh, because of its labor and resources. Little brother Haki Anthony, before we make our final thought, I think we need to give our people some sense of direction or, or a better understanding of not to be confused and fight on the enemy side. I'm saying the enemy because, Anthony, you raised a real fundamental point about the continuation of the same forces. When we talk about NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and AFRICON, where our all military wings is the military of the U.S. and the West, they were the same people at the Berlin Conference, killing and oppressing us. They were the same people who today in Africa and throughout the world killing and oppressing us. So why would any confused African talk about going to Ukraine, fighting for the interests of NATO? NATO, Africa, they are the enemy and not only to Africa, African people, but to humanity. And our youth need to understand that. A lot of our youth, they, they are actually talking about They've been uh, influencing them to think they're doing the right thing if they go there and fight for the rational forces in Ukraine. Talk a little bit about that. This whole question of NATO, NATO, African, and understanding those institutions, that institutions against the interests of Africa and African people, liberation and unification, as well as humanity. I'll start off with you first, Brother Haki. Well, Brother Africa, if if what you're if what you're proposing um that if people were aware in the African community in terms of history, if in fact that was come to fruition, if in people were conscious in terms of history, particularly as it impacts on African people, then there'd be no black conservatives. <laughs> so, so one of the things, you know, I, I think, you know, I mean, I understand the sentiment in which you raised that, and you're absolutely correct. It is important to understand the history, and because a lot of our people are ill-informed, and a lot of people don't understand the nature of the beast, uh, we tend to we tend to give legitimacy, you know, emanating you know from these news media and thinking that you know what they're telling us is somehow viable. I think you're right. I think it's important that African people understand that the reality is, irrespective of where you are in this, in this world, uh, when you look at the, the the status of African people in terms of socioeconomic status, uh, is always at the bottom, and that's a reason why it's in the bottom. And see, one of the things we cannot overcome is that the, in terms of the, the influence of history, history in, shapes events of today. And for somehow we want to believe that if we just forget about that, then we're going to be okay. But the problem with forgetting about it, you inadvertently empower those forces that's simple to cripple you, to undermine you, or to 
liquidate you or to kill you off. So we have a vested interest as human beings in terms of understanding, you know, that history is relevant. And the only way to theoretically change that history is to, one, understand it, two, to move, to work against that history, and then thirdly, to implement those strategies which get you, get you to where you need to be. You can't do that, any of that stuff, if you don't understand what you're fighting against. Often we talk about we're at war. We are at war. You understand that. The fellow panelists understand that. There are a lot of people, when you say you're at war, they're, they're, it's sort of confusion. They're like, well, at war with who? And then you attempt to explain to them how the system operates. It confuses a man of, uh, it produces a man of um, um, uh, 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 dissonance in which it's very difficult to believe that, in fact, you've been taught all, all his life, you know, that uh, you're part of this. This is the greatest country in the world, that you're lucky to be here. Uh, we, internalizing all of that nonsense is very difficult to then come to the realization, you know, that what you've been told is not true. So even when you, even when you, even when you uh, give them information that's contrary or counters the popular narrative, it's a very difficult thing for them to internalize. Uh, often, it, uh, often uh, what you're saying in terms of, you know, the reality of the nature of the beast doesn't 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 really germinate in the minds of a lot of people simply because they've been so conditioned to believe that you know what they've been taught is the only way to see things. So history is important in terms of understanding why African people, uh, you know, you know, uh, our people catch hell no, no matter where they are in the world. And so when you talk about Ukraine, you tell about the specific impacts on some African people. I think one of the things you got to understand that you know, just like they corrupted, co-opted, undermined the leadership of Ukraine, they do the same thing to Africa every day. When you talk about the ability of the CIA and other organizations like that to move into Africa and to get the African leaders to destabilize other African states, you tell yourself, what the hell? I mean, you seem to me so that's this 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 real a real disconnect in terms of the historical reality. How is it that you as a black man that some Westerner, some Westerner come over to you and tell you, Hey, I want you to intervene in the state because it's good for it's good for you and it's good for us. And you swallow that logic. Don't say history dictated when you look at the history in terms of the, the, the underdevelopment of, of, of the African continent? When you look at your own peculiar history in terms of the, the, the underdevelopment of your people, you look at the sheer poverty in the face of mass, all of these resources on the continent, but you look at the sheer poverty, doesn't, it, does, doesn't that give you pause to wonder what the hell is going on? Why, why are you over here in Africa fighting? Why do you want me to go and fight other African people for you? But yet they're able to do that. Why? Because, two things. One, there's kind of ignorance or lack of understanding in terms of African history. And secondly, the whole question around question around greed. And so, therefore, as long as you give them some money, then they're willing to destabilize whatever, regardless of the impact it has on the, their, their people, their countries, or the continent generally. So, clearly, Brother Africa, so when we talk about, you know, uh, you know all things have an impact on, on, Africa, on, on African people, then we have to have a historical understanding of how things operate, how things exist in this world. Because without that historical understanding of how things exist in this world, there's no way possible, no way conceivable to come up with a logical response, uh, you know, to 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 uh, the kind to 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 the kind of oppression, uh, you know, that's uh, inevitable when you take up the banner of the West. 
So, so clearly, Brother Africa, I think you're right. I think that somehow, you know, you know, we we have to understand that to reject this notion, we should be ignorant and not understand history. We have to understand history. No change is going to is going to manifest itself unless we understand the history. Because if you don't understand the history, what are you going to change? If you don't think there's anything to change, you don't change. You simply be complicitous. You go along with the status quo. You do whatever they tell you to do, thinking that it's okay. And so that as a consequence, you look at the situation of African children in society, we ask ourselves, so why is it, as, as, as these black conservatives say, the problem in the black community is that, well, uh, the, 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 there are no fathers in the household. The problem in the black community is that there's so much illiteracy. The problem in the black community, uh, people don't want to work. And they spout these things like they're actually saying something that's intelligent. And you say to yourself, what the hell? How fucking stupid can you be to spout such stupid stuff? But where did they get it from? They get it from popular media, which spouts those ideas. And they internalize the ideas, and they see those ideas as being rational. Or, or anybody with any historical understanding will understand that when you start talking about those situations like fathers not being in the household, the low literacy rate, or, um, or people being homelessness, then you understand the economic, social implications in terms of what's going on. But you can't understand economic or social, sociological political implications unless you understand there's a history behind this. You've got to understand history. No matter how much people don't want to hear that, the bottom line is that you must understand history to make sense of what's going on. So until we do that, uh, we'll never understand how the situation in Ukraine does impact what goes on for African people throughout the world. And, and, and once we understand reality, then we can move to change the situation. But the situation cannot change without the, understanding, the fundamental understanding of history. You must understand it. It's that simple. And I'll close with that. Brother Anthony, we must speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. <laughs> and the bottom line is you must know our friends and our enemies. NATO history is clear. It's the enemy to all mankind, Africa, African people, as well as Afrocon. Speak to the youth on this question of why they shouldn't and must not participate under that particular platform. Yes, uh, certainly. Um, One, I think uh, the solution to this problem is that African people must take control of the education of African youth. And uh, and uh, we're suffering uh, a lot of ignorance in our community because we, uh, we as a people have left the education of our youth up to other people. And, uh, and uh, you know, and that's created the dangerous situation we're in. And uh, we've got to teach the lessons of our history to our youth especially so that they can see through the lies being perpetrated by the imperialist media. Right now they can't because they don't have the tools necessary. For the most part, some don't. And uh, those who do, uh, who can see through, have an obliga- obligation to teach this to our youth. 
and uh, and it's our in our inability to do that that's created the situation where we repeat certain errors. History doesn't repeat itself, but you can, as Kwame Ture points out, without sufficient awareness and consciousness and education, you can repeat certain errors. And uh, and uh, that's the trap we're, uh, we're falling into. And uh, it would be tragic because uh, it only cons- compounds the problems we have. And I pointed out that uh, the, the numerous uh, African students in the Ukraine studying, and uh, this is a, a reflection of our failure to achieve Pan-Africanism yet. Uh, because with, uh, you know, uh, with, with Pan-Africanism, we would have the infrastructure necessary to educate our own youth. They wouldn't have to go all over the world in order to get a technical education. Uh, that would be something we could do ourselves. So we see here that uh, that this conflict points to that the that the uh that pan Africanism is the only solution to the problems facing the masses of our people at home and in the diaspora. Thank you, Brother Anthony. We are listening to Africa on the Move as your host, Brother Africa. We're gonna take a rubber stamp break when we come back. We're going to get our final thoughts and make some announcements. And we ask you to join us every Sunday from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. As we try to bring you issues, concerns, solutions, information that will help elevate you, enlighten you, and stimulate you to work harder for your mother Africa and your people as well as to push and make humanity forward. So this one time we take a roughly a culture break again to our youth. We're gonna remind you when Brother Bob Marley left Bob it to you. Don't you become a Buffalo soldier. We'll be right back. This is Africa on the move.
will be followed by Brother Anthony, who will give us an announcement about how we can attain the book, uh, dealing with Pan-African Roots and Brother Bob Brown, and a little something about his organization. And close out with Brother Haki announcement on the African Awareness Association tour, Peter Ride to Cuba and his final thoughts. That would be the order of the day before we close out tonight. So we will bring in Brother Moses and just get his final thoughts for the night. Brother Moses, we bring you back. Your final thoughts for tonight, Brother Moses. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. It's been quite interesting and uh, uh, very stimulating. Uh, um, certainly, you know, in order to unite the many to defeat the few, we're going to have to recognize that our differences are not uh, antagonistic and that the, the interests of the vast majority of people can be reconciled and uh, we can get organized and do the task which, which history puts before us. And um, this this uh, is important to be honest, integrity, uh, above board, uh, and and you know let your let your uh, interest be known, and uh, and um, in the struggle, eventually we don't always get what we want, but hopefully we get what we need, and. Uh, I just thank you, thank you, thank you for allowing me to be on the show one more time, and I look forward to next week. Thank you. It's always an honor to have you, Brother Moses. We thank you. Next, we'll go to uh, Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, talk to us about the announcement of Brother Bob's book. How can we find more information about it? And a little something about your organization, the AAPRBGC. Brother Anthony. Certainly. Uh, Brother Bob Brown uh, recently published uh, a book, a new book. Uh, We demand the full disclosure and digitization of all slavery era records, volumes one and two. Uh, You can purchase a copy of the set by going to our website www.a-aprp-gc.org. You can also find out more information about the history, objectives, and strategy of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, at the same website. And uh, uh, you can find out more about objective, which is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. And uh, you can find out about the history of our organization and our ideology. You can also call us at 202 Two four six four eight nine six to get more information about the All African People's Revolutionary Party GC. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be on the uh, uh, on this program tonight, 
uh, with uh, the fellow panelists and you, Brother Africa, and uh, thankful to the listening audience uh, that participated in this program tonight. Uh, My final thought for tonight is uh, the struggle for control of the world's resources is intensifying. And the only way, and uh, we, the only way we as a people will survive and thrive is through Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. That must be the objective of all African revolutionaries throughout the world and friends of Africa. And uh, we must strive to organize as never before because uh, uh, this is getting critical. And uh, there are several forces that have the ability to mutually destroy life on this planet. So we must get organized in order to secure our freedom and also to live as human beings and make our contribution to humanity. Thank you. And thank you, Brother Anthony. And we go to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, your announcement on your upcoming trip to Cuba and your final thoughts. Yeah, African Awareness Association will take its annual Black History, Education, and Cultural Travel Challenge. This is in solidarity with people in the cultural educators, artists, and women. Uh, this trip will take place July 23rd to July 31st, uh, leaving from Cancun, Mexico. Now, once in, once in Cuba, we'll be visiting Guantanamo, Santiago de Cuba, and Havana. Now, for your pre-application form, we advise you to email us at African Awareness Association, all one word, number two, at gmail.com. For more information, please call us, 804-49-7492 or area code 202-714-9435 or or go visit our website at www.aaa-cubatours.com. That's www.aaa-cubatours.com or email us at African Awareness Association, P.O. Box 4433, Richmond, VA, 23220. My final statement tonight, I was reading uh, a while back, uh, there was like 150 groups out of New York pushing a public banking bill. And I thought it was very interesting. I think one of the things that if we talk about you know, the role of banks, uh, you know, one of the things that often we, 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 we dismiss is that banks are here, you know, for the betterment of society. Unfortunately, in the context of capitalism, we, we're told that banks are here simply for profitability. In that context, the concerns and needs of the community is not an issue. So what these activists are proposing to public bank, like they have in North Dakota, where, uh, you know, those, those, those functions, those, those business and uh, those business uh, uh, focus, things focused on business uh, uh, in need of financing will be provided their financing through public banks. So those kind of things that are needed in the community in terms of not only in terms of, you know, businesses, but also in terms of employment, in terms of uh, in terms of affordable housing, 
if you had public banks, public banks could finance all these things. And the problem is that when you talk about financing, you know, you know, affordable housing, subsidizing, you know, um, businesses, subsidizing uh, employment, when you talk about these kind of things, inevitably the question becomes where are the funds going to come from in the context of capital society? Uh, one of the things in which, where you, in which you can meet the funds that you need, I think it has to come from the people themselves. I don't think it's going to come from the system per se. So if we can just convince the masses of people that in order to feel a better day, we need public banking. Uh, and if, public, if the masses of people buy into the concept of public banking, then there's a very real possibility we can create the public bank to provide the kind of services that we need in terms of the betterment of, you know, of society. So this notion of public banks by this group, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased to see this because it shows that uh, people are actually thinking about in terms of the uh, fundamental uh, disparities that exist in the society and the need to eradicate these disparities. And certainly these public banks would do a wonderful job in terms of eradicating a lot of these disparities. And so this project is something I'm, I endorse 100%. And having said that, Brother Africa, as always, I encourage people, you know, to unravel the matrix. Uh, you know, I think it's key in terms of, you know, us moving forward in society. It also fundamental understanding in terms of what it is what we're up against. And the bottom line is that uh, it's very difficult to imagine a way forward. So we have to first and foremost conceive what the situation is that we're confronted with, uh, strategize in terms of a way out of it. And, and we need to, we desperately need that to do that. And we need institutions, we need organizations to bring that out, bring that out, bring that about. And having said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you, Brother Haki, for your contributions to today's program. We thank all our panelists and analysts for their contribution to today's program. And we would like to uh, give and send our best wishes to our sister Eleanor. Hope that she get well, and we'll see her next week. And to you, the listening audience, like always, we thank you for allowing us to come to your home this evening where we can speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. We remind you that Africa on the Moon is a weekly radio show that you can listen and tune in every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S. If you have any issues or views or concerns that are going on in your community that are affecting African people, we have a platform for you, for you. We'd like to hear what's going on with the various progressive and revolutionary African forces and progressive forces throughout the world. Come share your information with us so our people can think as one and act as one. So until next time, we see you next week. And remember, Africa is on the move. This is Brother Africa. We say you next week, and we leave you with some words of wisdom from Brother Kwame Ture on Pan-Africanism. Pan-Africanism must come from the bottom up, from the masses of the people up. It is here then that we'll come to see the real aspect of Pan-Africanism. We said that in the Fifth Pan-African Congress, they called for mass organizations, and immediately mass organizations sprang up throughout the length and breadth of the African world. The Conventional People's Party, a mass party, sprang up in Ghana. The Democratic Party of Guinea, a mass party, sprang up in Guinea. Throughout the length and breadth of Africa, you had the TANU, the Tanzanian African National Union, which is now the CCM. My Swahili is uh, not as good as yours. It's Chimpa, Chimpuraza, Mazuri. That's very good. Oh, <laughs> my, my Swahili is bad. <laughs> Thank you. Exactly, exactly. And uh, 
That's their new party. But all over Africa, mass parties sprung up. If you look at the Caribbean, mass parties sprung up. And if you look at the United States, mass movements sprang up. So the call was heeded for mass confrontation. Of course, the Fifth Pan-African Congress made two definite and precise resolutions which I want to uh, highlight. Of course, Pan-Africanism from the very beginning was anti-colonial. From the very beginning, it was anti-colonial. It was weak. So when they came, they didn't say to the queen, we're going to put you out of the country. They said, you must treat the natives right. You must educate them. You must prepare them for self-government. These are things that are weak, but they were anti-colonial in essence. We must not look at the form. And we got stronger, the more this anti-colonialism will express itself. Now, anti-colonialism is nothing but anti-capitalism. Because colonialism is nothing but an offshoot, an aspect of capitalism. Therefore, if you're anti-colonial, you must be anti-capitalist, if you're logical in your thinking, of course, and your actions. Some people are not, but we are speaking of logical people here. <laughs> if you're anti-capitalist, then you must be socialist. Capitalism cannot unite Africa. Africa has to be united by socialism. Now, there's a lot of confusion here on this question of capitalism and socialism. Just recently, a young man said to me, but socialism died. I said, it did. He said, you didn't hear about it? I said, I missed the funeral. <laughs> of course, he spoke about the betrayals that occurred in the East. You must not let capitalism confuse your thinking. This is a struggle which Pan-Africanism takes on. We struggle against imperialism in the illogical arena because many people think that capitalism just wants to exploit your labor. It wants to confuse your thinking and make you think just like them. And this is where the real fight occurs. So therefore, this struggle of confusing the thinking, I told the man, I said, you're talking nonsense. Socialism cannot uh, uh, disappear. It cannot die. He said, yes, it can. I said, no. He said, how do you say that? I said, well, you are judging uh, socialism by socialists. You don't do that. He said, I've never heard such nonsense. If you don't judge socialism by socialists, what do you judge it by? I said, you judge it by its principles. Every system is judged by its principles, never its adherence. So he still saw confusion. He said, you're just talking double talk. I said, okay, do you judge Christianity by Christians? <laughs> So we must not be confused here. Socialism doesn't fall because of betrayal. No system does. The person who betrays themselves goes to the mud, but the system with its eternal principles keep marching on. If a system fell because of betrayal, Christianity would have been finished with Judas. At least Judas had the dignity to hang himself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Some of these who betray socialism don't have that dignity. Gorbachev still runs around speaking and I'm picking up 30 pieces of silver everywhere. Yeah. So uh, socialism is an economic system. And there can only be two in the world, capitalism or socialism, because every economic system must answer one fundamental question. Who will own and control the wealth of the country? Who will own and control the means of production? The question can only be answered two ways. Either a few will own or everyone will own. It's as simple as that. And under capitalism, we say, please summarize that we might have. No, I'm going. I thought I had 20 minutes. It's my I thought I had 20 minutes. I was going by the clock. How much time do I have left? I'm sorry, maybe I'm off. That's what I thought I did. I was watching. Now I'm watching my clock. I'm irresponsible. I'm rev revolutionary. I go by time. <laughs> got my clock right here. In <laughs> fact, I can say it in two words, black power. <laughs> and today we've gone to one, Pan-Africanism. <laughs> yeah. So there are only two economic systems, and it's going to be capitalism or socialism. Capitalism is a backward system. There's no need to discuss it. Certainly anyone who's been made a slave by capitalism ought to be hesitant in trying to support the system. But as a conscious African, I must be against capitalism and I must, of course, seek to destroy it. So in, when you speak of Pan-Africanism, you must understand you speak of socialism. 
And we want to underline there's only one socialism out here, and that's scientific socialism, whose principles are abiding and universal. There's no such thing as African socialism, Chinese socialism, Russian socialism, Arab socialism. There's only one socialism. The confusion arises over ideology. That is that which guides you towards your objective. So we're saying clearly here, Pan-Africanism is not an ideology. It is an objective. It is an achievable. Pan-Africanism is the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. All we want is a unified continent with a socialist system. That's all. But you know Africa is the richest continent in the world. When she's properly organized, she'll be the most powerful. Yeah, of course. Of course. And